Clubhouse. Who was that? Our neighbor, Miss Marion Brooke. And there's no need to be angry with her, my dear. The aunts will have forbidden her to come, and she has chosen to defy them. But why must I be the enemy? Well, that's easy. They have been in charge since the Mayflower landed, and now it's your turn. Because you are the future. And if you are the future, then they must be the past. That's what frightens them. Welcome to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Mike. Tonight, we're discussing the series premiere of the Gilded Age. This episode was called Never the New. The series was created by Julian Fellows, and tonight's episode was written by Mr. Fellows and directed by Michael Engler. Among his credits, Mr. Engler actually had directed four episodes of Downton Abbey, including one of their Christmas specials. So there's a definite existing relationship between him and Julian Fellows, who everyone knows, well, most people know, was the creator and the mind behind Downton and Abby. I'm laughing because you're already calling them Mr. Fellows and Mr. Angler. <laughs> you're getting right into the feel of this show where everyone's a Mr. or a Mrs. Or... I've got my bowler hat on. I'm wearing I'm, I'm wearing a white bow tie for this recording. I have my corset on, so we're all ready to go. <laughs> oh my God, in my notes, I was like, white ties and jewels for regular dinner seems like too much. <laughs> Just a reminder to our listeners that we've assumed that you've already watched this episode, so we're not going to go step by step. We're not a recap podcast, but... But we will be hitting all the highlights and, uh, of course, giving you tons of opinions. Let's take a 10,000-foot view here, Caroline. Did you watch Downton Abbey? Do you have any frame of reference for Julian Fellows? Which, I mean, he wrote Gosford Park, I think, is the other big thing, another period piece that he's known for. But Downton Abbey is really the thing. So I did not watch Downton Abbey. It was playing in my house. The thing that that pulled me into this one, and it's just very, like, happenstance, is that you and I are covering 1883 over for the Yellowstone podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts. Spotify podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. So this one being in 1882, I feel like I was very entrenched in this time period Mm -hmm. right now. I am completely, you know, reading everything and following what's going on in different parts of the country. So I was like, okay, I need to learn more about this anyway. So here we go. Let's do it. Agreed. I thought it was a nice coincidence that this is taking place in 1882 in the city, which is really the polar opposite to what, you know, James and Margaret Dutton and that clan is doing over in 1883. But I am also I'm an immediate I'm a born and bred New Yorker. I have lived in New York all my life. I am I wouldn't say obsessed with New York history, but I am a big fan of New York history. I love the Gilded Age. I think it's a fascinating time in New York's history, but really American history, which because of the Industrial Revolution and the amount of money that was starting to flow in, New York was a major center of that new economy, that new world that was being created at the end of the 19th century. So I listened to podcasts about this time period. I Yeah, I, this is very much in my wheelhouse. Pairing that with also covering 1883, this was like a dream send for me. So I also have to say, because I'm a Texan and we're covering 1883, which is happening in Texas right now, that I had to give your New York roots all the 
love and all the time to also learn more about your area, your neck of the woods, if you will. So this is going to be like, I think a little like comparative project of like, what's going on up there? And you can learn what's going on down here. And guys, I mean, if you're wondering why we don't cover the Ozarks at Pod Clubhouse, it's just because we don't have anyone that's from the Ozarks. I think. Mike. <laughs> it's, it's, it's what we do. We're, I mean, exactly. guys, Lord knows we cover all of the time zones, including London often. We so. certainly do. I was a fan of Downton Abbey. I was a latecomer to Downton Abbey. I really like the upstairs, downstairs nature, which was such a big part of that story. And I'm happy to see that's coming in to this story a little bit, too. There, there's a lot of, it looks like, series themes that are mm-hmm. going to be at play here. The upstairs, downstairs nature. I don't know how you feel about that telling a story via, like, the help, you know, kind of opining on what's going on upstairs. Does that work for you as a narrative? Were you into that part of the story? I felt like the mechanism of the help, they did a lot of uh, explaining to the audience. You know, there was a lot of layman's terms. There was a lot of just more casual discussion. And and because we had like new people and, and kind of a staff for the Russells, let's say, that were kind of gelling together or Peggy joining the staff at the Brooks Van Ryan house, then, you know, they had these these reasons to explain things to people. And I think that was helpful if you're going to be like dipping your toe into what is this story like when you have the upstairs downstairs. It was really helpful to have someone explain more about like how the classes work and why would there be a problem and what are the protocols. The characters tend to be the extreme sides of their masters and mistresses upstairs the the chefs the maids the butlers the valets you know they are very much taking strong sides on what's going on upstairs and and you see it in both the brooks van ryan house as well as in the russell's house if you're unclear of what is happening or what the stakes are or the old money versus the new money the new money versus the old rules to to mimic uh the show's catchphrase and our podcast name the, the downstairs is really helping you out with that. It's it's really putting a highlighter on on where everyone stands. And if you look at the whole thing with the upstairs being sort of like I'm kind of looking at it almost like the masquerade ball where everyone has this facade fully Polite. on and they're speaking right in this extreme you know rigid ways of how they're doing everything. Then downstairs where everyone takes their masks off and you actually find out like who's who and what's really going on. You get all the, the, the tea if you will. Classism, the old money versus new money definitely seems to be the threat of the series theme here. Well, I mean, let's listen to two opposing clips. I think Agnes and Stanford Stanford White describe best what is happening here in the show. So let's give a listen to old Agnes describe why she only lets old money come in the door. We must look out for some people with sons and daughters your age. That's true. I don't know anyone. Now, you need to know we only receive the old people in this house. Not the new. Never the new. What's the difference? The old have been in charge since before the revolution. They ruled, justly, until the new people invaded. It's not quite as simple as that. Yes, it is. Well, I'm new. I've only just arrived. Marion, never mind that the Brooks have been in Pennsylvania for a century and a half. My mother, your grandmother, was a Livingston of Livingston Manor. And they came to this city in 1674. You belong to old New York, my dear, and don't let anyone tell you different. You are my niece, and you belong to old New York. There you go. That sets up the entire premise of the show from their point of view. Why can't Bertha and George 
you know, have a say or a seat at the table. It's it's not a matter of what their bank account has. It's a matter of they're this nouveau reach. They, 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 you can't sit here. It's very mean girls. You don't belong here at this table. And they're very convinced in the Russell household too that that the way that they're going to do things is is going to be like a breath of fresh air. And there's not so much uh, love for the this is the way we've always done things attitude, and that already sets up a huge conflict. I, I like this character of George. He's played by Morgan Spector. He is the personification of new money at the end of the 19th century because he is a railroad tycoon. The robber barons, they came in certain uh, industries, Cornelius Vanderbilt, Jay Gould, the fictional George Russell. They are railroad tycoons and they are making a killing. They are slowly buying up the country because they're laying railroad track everywhere and they are massively wealthy. And he makes a great point to Bertha. Why do I have to kiss the butt of... Of Mrs. Haster, I've got far more money than they have like combined. You have everything in spades that she doesn't have. Why? Because it's not about your bank account size. Most of these old money families were not nearly as rich as the new money families moving uptown. It was simply the royalty of it all. England has the king and the queen and their royal line going back a millennia. The United States has everyone who came off of the Mayflower was related to Peter Stuyvesant or, you know, came over, you know, with the Dutch. And Agnes is totally willing to say that's why we deserve to rule because we always have. Right. And I was I was also marveling at the concept of basically access. You know, you can have all the money you want, but you have to have access to the right people. If you're not invited to the right party, if you're not invited to be part of, you know, basically any in particular circle, then yes, I think that the Russells are going to eventually figure out how to just pay their way into everything. It doesn't always work. You have to actually win people over and and try to become truly accepted, which is a complicated matter. Stanford White, who's played by John Sanders in here, is actually a real person. They mix in fictional people together with real people. Ragtime, which is one of a favorite book of mine growing up and was a Broadway show that I really enjoyed, did the same thing. It mixed the fictional and the real together. Stanford White is not at the peak of his career, not even close to it yet in 1882. He'll go on to design the Washington Square Arch. He will go on to the, uh, to build houses for the Astors and the Vanderbilts. He will build some of those Newport mansions that we see in this episode, but that's all years away. He is very much an outsider along with the Russells in this episode. And so his description about why the ruling class fears the Russells is great. Let's take a listen to that clip. Leaving already, Miss Brooke? I'm afraid I must get back, but thank you for including me. For including you in what? Thank you for coming, Miss Brooke. Who is that? Our neighbor, Miss Marion Brooke. And there's no need to be angry with her, my dear. The aunts will have forbidden her to come, and she has chosen to defy them. But why must I be the enemy? Well, that's easy. They have been in charge since the Mayflower landed, and now it's your turn. Because you are the future. And if you are the future, then they must be the past. That's what frightens them. It has nothing to do with money. Not really. It's all about prestige and being obsolete. Well, can you imagine being a part of the group that was so bold and brave as to be the first to come over and then not only to come over here and to and to survive, but to thrive and become like the highest level, you know, monetarily and leaders and everything else. Like you, you would kind of sink your shoulders of like, well, now that I've laid all this roads and I've built the buildings, right. now you guys can come over and how easy 
it is for you to now suddenly make a fortune. You know, I could see where you, you, you would have some animosity. I have to say that the actual setting of New York City was like making me smile because, you know, we do our set decorator show with Beth Kushnick, Hollywood to Your Home, over on our other podcast. And one of the things we talk about always is having that lived in feel. And it was so funny to be looking around at the streets and have like the cement and everything be like perfectly white and everything just looked like so super new. And at first it was a real turnoff for me. Like I was like, this is so weird. Everything looks like it's just like, you know, like just brand new, you know, it doesn't look like lived in or anything. And then after like, I know this sounds silly, but like after a little bit of town, I'm like, oh my Lord, they probably just did like pour that sidewalk. Like it was like really slowly, like I can't even imagine seeing New York through these eyes. I think when they were standing on the dock and they looked across and there was no skyscrapers and no nothing thing and she's like that's new york city and it was like no what <laughs> like it looks so weird uh so the astors you, you see uh donna murphy at the end of this episode finally she is mrs astor caroline astor she is the matriarch of of high society at this time she is the arbiter of society very real person very much controlled old money astor old money very much controlled who was deemed to be eligible for high society and who was admitted to the club and who was not they lived at this time on 34th street and fifth avenue they're 30 blocks south, 30 blocks south of where the Van Rynes are living and where the Russells are building their huge mansion at, you know, 801 Fifth Avenue. That when the Astros built their house, that was the top of the city, you know, not much long before there where all of the common people lived. It was down on like 14th Street at, you know, Union Square. That was like Midtown in New York City in, the, in the, you know, just a decade or two before beforehand 65th street i mean you have central park there central park is still a relatively brand new thing uh 65th street where they're located if if you have an idea of central park it's actually pretty south central park but it's just south of where the entrance is for the central park zoo that's essentially right where the russells have built their house but that is the top of new york i mean the hamiltons famously had a house much further north from there in what is now known as washington heights that was like the country it was still the island of Manhattan. It was just way farther north than anyone ever built before. So this stuff is brand new. The Astor's house eventually would be torn down to build the Empire State Building in the 20th century. And they moved up into the 60s, right where the Russells are and the Van Rynes are. But they were ruling the roost from 34th Street, full 30 blocks south of there. So, yeah, I mean, rapid, rapid expansion north as all this money is flowing into the city. You brought up something about the Russells and how they were not less so George, Bertha thinks that she, if she keeps managing it, right, she has this great clip about how she has a plan to get in. And it's said a couple of different ways in this episode. It's one of the three humiliations, I was calling it, of Bertha in this episode. It's mm. this idea of we shouldn't be afraid of new people or new things. And that kind of goes over like a lead balloon. But let's listen to it because I feel really bad for Bertha so much in this episode because these people are just kicking her in the face. But let's listen to this clip. Mrs. Russell, Mrs. George Russell, and this is my daughter Gladys. From further up Fifth Avenue, on the corner of 61st Street. But of course, that great, that new house we've all been talking about. How good of you to come. Let me introduce you to Mrs. Russell, Mrs. Morris. How do you do? Mrs. Russell has come here today with her daughter from their new house on the corner of 61st and 5th. It's just been finished. You must know the one I mean. 
How thrilling. Who built it for you? Our architect trained in Europe, Mr. Stanford White. You must pay us a visit. How brave. Not to go with the same old builders everyone else uses. I don't think we should be afraid of new things. Or new people. How often we have said to each other, we must know the family who live in that marvelous house every time we drive past. And here you are. I hope we can persuade you to an interest in our cause. As you say, I'm here. They have no idea who she is, Caroline. I, my heart was breaking for her so often in this episode. That's just one example. Literally two minutes later, they have they couldn't remember her name. When, when <laughs> Ada and Marion show up, they can't introduce her because they don't remember her. She's invisible. Well, I'm going to give 50-50 on that because one of the – you you know this from other shows you and I have covered. One of the, one of the slights that women give to one another is to – Act like they don't remember your name. Continuously call you the wrong name. That's like one of the like quintessential ways to make someone feel small. So I think these ladies have so many tricks up their sleeve that they know how to make people feel, you know, completely frozen. It is a classic trope of the, uh, what was your name again, kind of thing. It's Aurora Fane and her friend is Anne Morris. They're like the two socialites that we have to kind of keep track of. Aurora Fane played by Kelly O'Hara and Anne Morris played by Katie Finneran. Yes, it may be a little bit of way of belittling her and kind of putting her in her station. But man, what a crappy thing to do in front of her daughter. Oh, man, that's just like the whole thing. It's just insult after insult. <laughs> Ways to, to continuously knock someone down a peg. It's seemed that they didn't know the family but they certainly knew the house in a way like they i feel like they were thought the the russell's new house was some kind of monstrosity but i i watched this a couple times one time i took it as oh they know the house you know it's this eyesore and then i watched it again and i wasn't sure maybe they were making the whole thing up they really have no idea who they were i took it not that the house was an eyesore but that it was outside what everyone else does that they had all used a different architect Everything was just different than what they were expecting. So not necessarily an eyesore like everyone hates it, but it's just not like everyone else's. So obviously they're just going against the grain in every which way. I find it hard to believe they wouldn't know the Russells. I mean, George Russell clearly has his name on the building. Everyone in business doesn't say Russell who. So I think it's Charles Fane and Patrick Morris, these two New York City aldermen, the husbands of these two ladies who lunch. I'm sure they very much know who George Russell is. It hit me both ways because I feel like there is a level of oblivion outside of the circle that's permitted. There's definitely a ways of taking it where it definitely feels like oh we know who you are we just can't acknowledge you like there are like like uh you know the russells are like a leper colony you know (laughs) these women have you know their charity work but i'm telling you keeping up with the joneses like starts with these people so to say i don't know who the joneses are mm, nah you know who the joneses are you can act like you don't know you can act like you don't bother yourself you don't have the energy or the or the time to care about who they are Uh uh-huh but you still know the deets you got you know who it is I, i mean to bolster you this is the conversation between aurora and her aunt ida uh, ada uh, cynthia nixon's character literally like two minutes later i love i love the snarkiness in this clip don't tell aunt agnes they were here she'd be livid with me she'll find out i feel rather sorry for the girl i like them that's not the point what is the point let's face it aunt ada we need money and you know how much those women give when they want to get in 
There's a price for that, Aurora, and it's no good thinking you won't have to pay it. Those women. Oof. Because it was so nasty. It was so nasty. <laughs> this all still exists. I have to tell you that this is 100% real. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure in high society, it's exactly the same. But I'm saying for, for my station in life, it happens on Facebook. And like, you know, there's like moms of my town. Then there's bad bitches of my town. And I belong to both of these groups. But I mostly hang out in the bad bitches group. One involves a leather jacket and stilettos. The others does not. Is that what the difference uh, is? Yeah, the other one's stilettos and pearls. And this ah. one's leather and stilettos. But I own pearls and I own a leather jacket. So I play both sides on this. There is 100% in the bad bitches group, people who will, they will go into the moms group and just stir up trouble on purpose. 100% on purpose will write something and say something just to stir up all of them. It's a whole game. And it is about knowing how to push each other's buttons. And I mean, if you had to say like a, like a subset name of this, it's like Gilded Age how to push each other's buttons because right. that's all everyone does in the show. It's whether it's with money, whether it's with clout, whether it's with access, whatever it is, it's just a series of pushing each other's buttons. So what I was calling the three humiliations for me, this was the first one, this idea in particular, the when Marion and Ada show up and she can't even remember, you know, or acts like she doesn't remember her name and makes her introduce herself and Gladys again, the daughter being there makes it all so much more awkward and, and worse. And Gladys being an age where she sees it, she looks horrified at what's happening here. Taisa Farmiga, who's playing uh, Gladys here, I think does such a great job of looking on in horror because she's at that right age. She's just do, about to enter the society. And she looks so uncomfortable with everything she's seeing in society. And not only that, but from her mother, too. I don't know if you caught some of the looks she gives her mother throughout this episode. I did. I did. The thing that, you know, I'm so happy we did so much research in some of our other podcasts because Meet Me in St. Louis was screeching at me about the fact that she wears her hair down. And I was like, oh, it's like so clear to me of her age and station in her family and life here because she doesn't wear her hair up. So she's not come out yet. And I, I know that's like a small little thing, but look at us. I felt like I was like, man, that Christmas podcast really came through research wise. I totally missed that. But I mean, I do defer to you and hair related matters. <laughs> Gladys always wears her hair half up and not all the way up. That's a big deal. As a mom and a daughter, what did you think of this idea that she hasn't come out in society you know the the debutante phase only for the sole reason that bertha wanted to have a ballroom worthy of such an event why in the world would you have her come out before you were coming out in new york city in your brand new house in your brand new circle of people like that's a hundred percent when you would wait to do it it's silly because it seems like they're waiting way too long she seems like she's getting way too old to have coming out right but it's like okay i mean i get it i get what you're doing I think that Mrs. Russell, 1000% is just trying to do everything by the book in a way that will appease everyone. It's Carrie Coon, really. It's it's not even like Mrs. Russell. Carrie Coon has this like, I'll break your neck kind of like dude that she brings to this role that I think is fantastic. It's what Drew, my son, is watching it with me. And every time she comes on, he's like, I just want to see what she's going to do. I just want to see if she's going to like kill someone or do something crazy. <laughs> and I was like, I get it. Uh, let's talk about Carrie Coon for a second, though, because for people who don't know, she was the lead on The Leftovers for the three seasons of that 
that show, the character, because I think there are parallels, I, I think, between Nora and, and Bertha Russell here, which probably are Carrie Coon, like you just said. She has this side to her that can be just so vicious, so like ready to cut a bitch is like the best way that I can say it. She in both stories, I feel like she's having these constant moments where people are doing things that are beyond offensive. They they are humiliating to her. They are, you know, poking at her so much harder than anyone else that she ends up being in this on the on the opposite side of the bully role. And, you know, in leftovers it was oh, it was her versus the guilty remnant and just their constant, constant bullying of her. And and then and she, it made her go pretty crazy in the things that she would end up doing versus now Mrs. Russell. You know, she she just wants to move on with her life here. She does want to be part of society. She wants to be recognized. They are just going to make this really, really, really difficult for her. I realize you keep calling her Bertha. I'm not going to be able to call any of these people other than like Mrs. Russell and like Mr. Russell, even though I know it's George and Bertha. That just feels wrong. It's too informal, Mike. You don't know them that well. I'm doing a Tony Bennett here. I've already untied my white bow tie since we've been talking here. I am being way too informal. But here's the thing. I don't know that I can correctly and consistently and let the microphone pick up Ms., Mrs., or Miss. We just got to, Mike. It's just wrong. It's rude. We cannot do it. I also think Bertha is a fantastic name. So I think it's a horrible name. <laughs> I think it's a fantastic name for a character, for, for, an up, uh. for an upstart trying to claw her way into society and being named Bertha. This is a cast that features two Carolines in it, and we have a Bertha. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Just saying that you have Carolines, you have Marions. It was just a different name, a different generation for names. This is a real crossover time. It's a very country name. George and Bertha are farmers. Uh, you know what? I saw you know? I saw Stupendous written across the front entrance. It said Charlotte. <laughs> it said terrific. terrific. It said some pig. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Look at us bringing in this literature of Charlotte's oh, Web, y'all. Oh, E.B. White, you scamp. Right. E.B. White just totally just brought his drunk ass in here. I want to play this manager clip because this is really her whole plan, trying to explain to George why they need to jump through those hoops because he's having it. He's actually being probably more supportive than I think your average TV husband would be depicted and more loving and supporting at this point. But also, he doesn't really understand why she feels the need to do this. So let's play this clip and then see, is she really doing it for Larry, Gladys, and Mr. Russell? Did you know they shot Jesse James? He had his troubles. I have mine. <laughs> so, how was your afternoon? I've left cards with Mrs. Stevens, Mrs. Rutherford, Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Vanderbilt, Mrs. Skirmerhorn, and Mrs. Astor, of course. Of course. So, now they know we're here. We have been in New York City for three years, Bertha, watching this house rise from the sidewalk. But we've been stuck down on 30th Street with yesterday's men. You chose the house. Well, I didn't know how things worked then. Now I do. The point is, we're settled where we should be, and that's what I wanted to show them. They don't care. They don't know we exist. Well, they will now. And there's no need to sound superior. We cannot succeed in this town without Mrs. Astor's approval. I know that much. So we are to bow down before a woman who has less money than me and less of absolutely everything than you. I'm only doing it for you. And Larry. And Gladys, of course. Of course. I want people to see they come from a good background. They'd be lucky to welcome them into their homes. Would they be lucky to welcome me into their homes? Or you? You can laugh, but we'll get there. I just have to manage it carefully. Isn't she really also doing it for herself and, and, and trying to earn the acceptance that she thinks that she is owed? 
For sure. I mean, it's for all of them. I mean, I think that every mother says they do it for their kids and stuff like that. I mean, isn't that just a super cliche line to say, like, oh, what about the children kind of thing? So, yeah, I mean, it's completely about the kids. And also, I mean, and Mr. Russell, I mean, hello, having connections and being thought of as a leader in your little clique of the world, it, it does matter for his business. It, it does matter. He has his own ways of handling things to work around it, but it would be a whole lot easier if he was just accepted in high society. Uh, for sure. For sure. I mean, the way his ear, the only time he's really engaged in this conversation is when he hears the Morris and Fane names and, and he's like, oh, isn't that, aren't they the husband, you know, aren't their husbands so-and-so? And then, you know, they're New York City aldermen. I may have business with them. Um, it's also the way he keeps dates, right? He asks, when is the charity event? And she says May 1st. And he, he knows that date because that's the date he's going to meet with Thornburn and have that conversation with him. So he's always kind of in business mode. So you're Definitely right. It's probably easier a little bit of honey, though he strikes me as someone when it comes to business doesn't mind getting a little bloodied, uh, you know, and he comes kind of ready to, to fist fight. Let's talk about George because he's they're setting him up to be kind of a complex character. He seems to be very devoted and loving to his wife and supportive of her. And and he seems to be pretty pro his kids, uh, you know, acknowledges his son is going to, you know, has some oats to sow and being kind of supportive of Gladys and rolling eyes with her, or, you know, when Mrs. Russell is telling her to go do this or that. But then he's also taken Thornburn out to the woodshed in that scene for no other reason than just to make a, a point. What was your take on the character? What's your feel for him? You have you have good bones about this kind of things. Should we trust him? Should we like him? What do you think? Well, I like him because he is going to be a complex character. I can tell that he is not going to be somebody who's going to care about doing it exactly by the book. That's important to having a character that's fun and clever and interesting to watch. He definitely feels ruthless. I know you said that he, he only kind of knows things by business dates, but that's okay by me. I mean... That's how I wrench my book. I mean, <laughs> so yeah. Well, this I is his whole life. Their home life and his business and their societal standing, they're all intertwined. Yeah. Where they live, how they live, who they can talk to, all has to do with how successful his business is. And I don't know that it's that different these days, honestly. Maybe not for everyone, but certainly what your dad does kind of dictates a whole lot about what ends up happening with you mm. and what opportunities you have. I'm okay with every bit of what he does, you know, the lesson that's taught here about not messing with me, especially when it comes to, you know, that rudeness of like, it's called negotiation. I love that George clip. Is not, he's not somebody to mess with. And then you should not underestimate him. Let, let's play that clip here, the Thornbird clip, because I think it's going to be very important to understand him as a businessman going forward. But you turned me down twice. I turned down your offer because I thought you'd come back with more. It's called negotiation. Not in my book, Mr. Thorburn. You refused my bid, and now I will build a new line alongside yours. Which would wipe me out. I'm afraid that'll be a consequence, yes. But it is not my principal intention. Oh, isn't it? Well, thank the Lord. Is there anything else? Because I have another appointment. So what you are saying is you would rather waste a fortune than pay an honest price for a line already operating? But I do not see it as a waste. Once people learn that my second offer is invariably my last, they won't, as a rule, refuse me. Over the years, I expect to save a lot more money than I'm spending now. You bastard. I may be a bastard, Mr. Thorburn, but you are a fool. And of the two, I think I know which I prefer. 
I love every goddamn thing about that clip. <laughs> to say nothing of Morgan Spector's beard, it's glorious. Uh, As a beard wearer myself, I am in love with his beard. Mr. Russell, he knows what he wants and he's going to go get it. And he has the money to get it. And he isn't afraid to spend the money because he's playing the long game here. And that's super important. So when he says that he's essentially using Thornburn is willing to pay out thousands of dollars now so that everyone in the industry, there's a lot of track to be laid in the United States at this point still. Cleveland and Sandusky is the least of, of his worries in the, long, in the long game. The idea of my second offer is my last offer. I appreciate that and having and that having teeth and that people understand. No, I, I, there will not be a third offer. I will destroy you. The third offer is annihilation of your uh, business. Yeah, annihilation of your business. <laughs> I gave you two doors and that should be enough for you. I love this cutthroat business. I appreciate it because he's not a monster. If he went home and conducted his affairs at home, I think that would sour me. Meaning if he treated Mrs. Russell less like a partner in this and more like he treated her like I told you once, I told you twice, do what I say. Right. Because he could be like that. He absolutely could be. And I think most depictions of people in this character would be drawn that way. And maybe mm -hmm. even not so much with Mrs. Russell, certainly with his children. And we don't see any aspect of him. A lot of, a lot of dads that are powerful get depicted like Mr. Von Trapp at the start of Sound of Music. Captain, please. Sorry, Captain Von Trapp. You know, you <laughs> blow a whistle and they come marching down the stairs. That would be very easy to depict him here based on how he conducts his business. I like that he's not. He shifts in and, you know, he he's loving and supportive. He's supportive. So the three humiliations, right? There is the charity event. There is Mamie Fish hiding upstairs, refusing to face Mrs. Russell directly in order to take her card. And then she throws a party for 200 that no one comes to. The third my humiliation. on that third one. Oh, my heart. All I could think of was you, Caroline. I, I The empathy I knew you would have <laughs> for her but just the idea i was thinking i was like if caroline threw a party for 200 people confident that it was going to be well attended and no one showed up i personally thought and i don't really care what the people think and i still think i would die i thought of you so hard i was like i don't know what you would do to console mrs russell in this case well here's the thing i would be the friend being like you shouldn't do this don't do this man don't be this way don't Which do Mr. this russell like, does try to say i mean he suspects it he right he does say they're not gonna come like right. what are you doing like stop don't do this he brings poor Stanford White in, a guy who no one knows yeah. at this point to say, what can you do to help? Well, to try to answer questions, to try to be someone who can like create conversation and that right. kind of stuff. I mean, so here's the deal. I wouldn't be in this position because I would never throw this party. <laughs> and the more detail that she put into it, the more my heart was breaking. I yeah. kept saying to my son, I was like, no one's going to come to this party. No one's going to come to this party. And every detail that she kept agonizing over, I was like, oh, you are just making this so much worse. She's pumpkin in the road if Larry doesn't save pumpkin. I mean, she's just she's just standing there waiting to get run over. But here's the thing. It's trickier than that. She's not pumpkin in the road because pumpkin doesn't know what's going to happen. OK, <laughs> she's willing to continuously push forward. Right. She's she's going like an erosion route. So she's going to continue to throw these. But what could happen? What's going to stick against the wall here? Because she does actually make a little inroad with Marion coming. There is a little bit of something, something that starts to happen. It's all tiny it's all minute and please the big wigs don't show up so it is heartbreaking it is not a success but 
no one could say there wasn't like a little crack, just a little crack, you know, in the action there with Marion coming. So this is what she needs. She's just, she, this is not a woman who's going to come through with one wrecking ball. She has to continuously erode the situation here and break down that wall. That's the only way for her. I want to play a clip from the end of the episode because you're you're 100 percent right. Uh, I want people that are that are listening to these and just uh, using these to highlight parts of the episode. Focus not only on her words, but focus on the support that Mr. Russell gives here and the comment that he says to her because it resonated with me. I, I would hope that my partner would give me the same kind of boost in the same situation. This is harder than you thought it would be. I know that. But I hope you won't give up. Then good night. I met their son in Newport with Mamie Fish. Did you go? Don't be ridiculous. I'll never give up. And I promise you this. I'll make them sorry one day. I'm glad to hear it, my dear. Defeat is not your color. Someone stitched defeat is not your color on a goddamn pillow and sent it to me because I love that line. I, I loved it. I resonated with me, but I love her determination. She She's sitting here and she's armadilloing up hard. And then she realizes, no, no, I'm not going to be that person. I loved it. I loved it. See, I don't think she ever was that person, but she has to be you know, hurt first, you know, right, I mean, I guess, she yeah. is hurt and it, and it is painful, but the look in her eye, mm-hmm. her eyes look like she could shoot lasers out of them. And you know what? The whole thing with George, I mean, that is a very sexy partner who, who yeah. is not sitting there just being like, you know, coddling and like, oh, well, it, especially he never says it's not that important. Don't no. worry about it. He doesn't, he doesn't try to downplay the importance of their status. That's huge huge if your partner will understand that and then to like bolster you and be like you're like tough as shit get out there and do what you want to do in this world that is a very sexy partner he recognizes that this is her business and so for her from his point of view she needs to attack the situation the same way he takes down thornburn you if either you give them an opportunity to play ball and then you slit their throats and you build a rail line alongside them and this is exactly it right she gave them an opportunity to play ball come to my party come to my open house come to my housewarming i it was fascinating but i'm so proud of her for trying and at the same time she knew she was going to be gut punched like there was a part of her that 100 was like this is just what you have to do it's the whole these are negotiations she's doing her own form of negotiations so here's the story i want to relate to you this is a story from history from high society the vanderbilt's very wealthy family cornelius vanderbilt was was one of the first major robber barons not accepted by mrs astor who that scene if you were wondering what the uh, you know the cutaway the scene was cutting between george and bertha russell in the bedroom to carrie astor and her mother caroline astor mrs astor as as she will be the mrs astor as she will be referred to um in mrs astor's the mrs astor's drawing room throwing the invitation uh mrs russell's invitation on the fire and then cutting back to the russells in 1883 vanderbilt's have been shunned by high society. Alva Vanderbilt has a giant house built. 
she uh, she decides that she has a plan to get into high society. She's going to force the issue. She holds a ball. Carrie Aster, the same Carrie Aster in this in this episode, the the real Carrie Aster, Carrie Aster that's being played by Amy Forsythe in this show. That real Carrie Aster, she wants to go to this ball. It's being set up as the ball to go to of 1883. Alva Vanderbilt, right before the party, I think it's the day of or the night before the party, says to Carrie, I'm sorry, you can't come to my ball because your mother has never invited me to her house or to one of her balls where the 400 uh, apocryphally comes from 400 people were able to fit in the mrs astor's ball and that was deemed the 400 acceptable society for polite society alva says to carrie your mother never called upon me so i can't have you come to my party because i was never officially welcomed by your mother Well, lo and behold, she gets a visit, a hand visit from the Mrs. Astor, basically accepting her into society right after that, so that then Carrie can then be going to attending to Alva's party in the Vanderbilt mansion. That is Bertha Russell. That's what Bertha Russell is going to have to do. She's going to have to force the issue that way and play that kind of, you know, hardball. I love that story because it felt so resonant and I'm sure it was probably some inspiration for what's going on here. These are the games that we're playing. It's no different than building the rail line right next to Thornburns. This is where, this is where we're at. A lot of business is done through these networking channels, and so it's it. You could dumb it down to just be like, oh, these are just like women who lunch, you know, just hanging out together or whatever. It's not though. It's the parties you go to, the conversations that are had, the deals that are struck, the people who can trust each other. You know, that's how the world goes round. And so, and I think that this is so much bigger than just ballrooms and it's i mean it's how cities are built and and and, and empires there was one quote in this episode that sounded sweet but given the mrs the ms turner character that we're introduced to the mrs russell's valet uh you know slash maid in this episode given the eyes she's making at george and it feels like she's going to make some kind of play for him for mr russell there's a line in here where he says where mr russell says to mrs russell i just want you to be happy and i know my loving you isn't enough and carrie coon mrs russell smiles at him and says it's almost enough but acknowledging that she really does need this to work. And it it sounds like a very sweet moment, but it did plant a seed of doubt in my mind with Miss Turner lurking downstairs and making obvious eyes at Mr. Russell. Fidelity is going to be tested here before long. Did you pick up on any of that with Miss Turner? Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, yes. And that goes back to our conversation at the beginning when you asked me about like the upstairs, downstairs, the downstairs portion and that the the interactions that they have with the help is going to expose other aspects of their personality that can't possibly come out when they're in their like formal versions of themselves. So I think that we're going to learn a lot about George and things that are not so sexy about him, you know, in the coming episodes. Let's talk about Ms. Turner, played by Kelly Coran here, because she is interesting. She almost felt like an old money spy that felt like she had been planted in this house because she spends most of the whole episode nasty talking about her boss. How is that permittable? If, if, wouldn't word get up to 
uh, to, to Mrs. Russell before long that you have this worker who is spending the most intimate amount of time with you and she's just talking all sorts of nasty behind your back? Well, I think that for the exact reason that she was hired was stated that she was there to basically teach the the old money ways to the Russell household. So it, with that, I think you get the good with the bad. Like she's going to be nasty and spout off stuff, but she's bringing this certain skill set that Mrs. Russell needs. You know, she listens to her when it comes to how she dresses. She listens to her when it ha- when it comes to just like the subtleties of things, things that only women know that other women are doing um, that are they're not like written in the big handbook somewhere, but it's just much smaller than that. I, I think that she needs her, but I, of course, yes, I think she's she's going to be a snake the entire time, whether it be with her husband or or in other just nasty backstabby ways. Madam does not understand how these things should be managed. Oh, I beg your pardon. You know as well as I do, she isn't one of them. I used to work for Mrs. Griswold on fiftieth. That's why Madam hired me to teach her the ways of the old people. But Mrs. Griswold wouldn't have come near this house. Then she was a very stupid woman. The mistress is not a player in the great game, whatever she says. Well, Miss Turner, I hope you can overcome your distaste and give the mistress a helping hand with her clothes for the evening. Surely things are changing. Not fast enough for Mrs. Russell. Always act as if you liked her. When I have to. She does not have the manner of the real people, and she cannot learn it. Mrs. Griswold would see through her in a moment, in just a moment. She was so wonderful. Why did you leave? Or were you fired? She died, Mr. Watson, of a heart attack, just as she was changing for Mrs. Astor's ball. It was very hard on Mr. Griswold. Because he was left all alone. Because he wanted to go to the ball. Now, I let that clip play the extra 10 seconds because I found that line very, very funny. It was bad. I was like, oh, you. Uh, but, you know, she says she she's not one of the real people. You're a maid in this house on this woman's payroll. And you have, I mean, that was what I was talking about, about the upstairs, downstairs, that the help in the show are the avatars for the extreme positions in a lot of cases. You have this woman working for the enemy, essentially, the way she sees it. And yet she's there and she's giving her advice on the brooch. But it, it calls into question all of it, though. I mean, does the was the brooch uh, the right call to not wear it? I mean, she let her wear that yellow dress, which I thought was very loud for such an affair. Uh, you know, every, <laughs> but, but, I, you. but I question everything, though, that's coming out of her mouth as far as advice goes. Okay, I didn't exactly think she was working for the enemy. She has experience with the enemy. I will accept that. I didn't think so. I mean, I definitely think her moves on George is is more the thing you have to be concerned about. Oh, for sure, for sure. But yeah. I don't think that she's going off and telling somebody else like, oh, she didn't know what brooch to wear. Ha, no, no, ha, ha. metaphorically, I think she's working for the enemy. That she's such. But that, working for is 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 it or representing? Repre- you know, entrenched okay, in but that. All yes. of those things are different words. So yes. I. I I do not think she's reporting back to somebody. I don't think she's doing. I think that she's going to wreak havoc in the Russell household because of her own ways about her. She she just is one of those people. She's a little time bomb. But I don't think that she's running over to the other society women and telling stuff. I don't think. Maybe she will turn out to be that way. Interesting, though. I, I don't either. But it is interesting, though, that immediately after the charity lunch occurred, it was Footman Jack down in the helper basement of the Brooks Van Ryan house 
talking about how he already knew that Marion and Ada had run into the Russell ladies and that they had, which is scandalous the way they were reporting it, but that was moments later he already knew. So there is reporting happening here. There is information exchange between the old money and the new money at the help level. So it's interesting, but I, I agree. I think, I think Ms. Turner represents chaos within the household potentially. You know, there was a line in 1883 we talked about, I think it was the second episode or third episode, about how carelessness was contagious. And Ms. Turner has a line towards the end of this episode. She's going off. She says, the party was a folly. The house was a folly. She says, failure is catchable. And I thought that was a really revealing line about Ms. Turner. More than anything, I think Ms. Turner is to be watched because she wants to become a Mrs. Russell herself. I don't oh, think yes. I, she she does not want to be dressing her mistress for very long. She wants to be the mistress before long. A thousand percent. And, and I do think that failure is catchable. I mean, that it's the entire like you don't want to be seen with the wrong people. Don't don't hasn't our own mothers said things like that about not running with the wrong crowd because it'll give you a bad reputation. I was the wrong crowd, Caroline. Don't lay down with crowd. dogs. Right. You get up with fleas like there's a whole thing about like you are who you hang out with. So, yeah, I mean, I think that Mrs. Turner does care about all that stuff. And, you know, we'll see what happens with her. I definitely think she. She is eyeing Mrs. Russell's spot. She does not have the chops to take down Carrie Coon. So, <laughs> no. All one needs to see is the glowing eyes in the dark when she's laying in bed. Her eyes were like three times that size. It was like, oh, what big eyes you have. <laughs> oh, yeah. She, mm, you do not want to spar with that woman at all. I mean, there's a whole staff here in the in the basement of the Russell house. I think the only one that was interesting to talk about was uh, Mr. Watson, played by Michael Cerverus. Uh, he's George's valet. He's the one responsible for. I George say valet or valet. Valet is how they used to pronounce it in Downton Abbey. So oh, that was why I was is using that. British that. or is I, that? I don't know. I guess you could say valet. I guess you could say, I think both are acceptable. I'll, I'll say it both ways and we'll say. It. So he's. You don't the, have to. He's <laughs> valet, valet. He's the one responsible for getting George. He, I think he's interesting. One, because he has, he has this kind of out of left field comment. He's very, as unloyal or disloyal as Ms. Turner seems to be to Mrs. Russell, Mr. Watson seems to be very loyal to. To Mr. Russell and several times talks about how Mr. Russell is a success and that when you're a success, people want to know you. And he seems very loyal to that. But he has a really interesting revealing line. He says that when you fail, people turn their back on you. And even the staff and Ms. Turner in particular look at him and go, what do you have in your past? Like that is a very particular and specific line. What's your take on Mr. Watson? And also, he's the one who sees Ms. Turner making eyes at George. So he already seems like he's a little bit clued into maybe her motivations. Conflict going on here between these two? Yeah, lots of conflict going on between these two. It's only going to cause upheaval in this household. And I think when that happens, the the help gets shit on, <laughs> yeah. you know? And so I think that they they want to run a tight ship here. They just want everything to be smooth, smooth. And so when you have someone like Miss Turner trying to rock the boat, man, come on. 
No. Uh-uh. Sit down somewhere. I'm, I am struggling right now because I'm trying to remember for the life of me. Oh, God, six. It was Shit's Creek. You know, they were high society and then they have a failure and no one calls and checks in on them. And that was like a whole like episode of like, you never called me. You never checked in on me. Like everyone goes down, you know, the people who are around them and nobody cares. That's what to me, Mr. Watson was saying. I was like, you know. They forget about you. You get you get cast off. Season two, which is interesting, though, that he knows that, though, because so far it doesn't seem like Mr. Russell has had any failures to have that experience. So the question is, where does where is that knowledge, Mr. Watson, coming from? Well, he's old, so he's I feel like he's coming from some other people. For sure. Maybe he worked for Ms. Griswold's uh, husband who wants to go to the ball <laughs> so quickly. Who knows? These are all coming from other families, though. As much as this show is about Bertha's story, and I think we will be following her story, I think the story is also very much about Marion's story, Marion Brooks' story. Let's shift and talk about about the Brooke Van Ryan family for a little bit. What's your first initial hot take on Marion Brooke, played by Louisa Jacobson in the series? Shows a penniless, doesn't homeless penniless, doesn't understand the world. Go from there. Okay, so she was harder for me to kind of hook into. I I know that her story is straightforward, but there was something about her. I don't know if it's the character. I don't know if it's the way she was being portrayed. I'm not exactly sure, but I had a very hard time warming up to her. And in fact, there was like certain whole scenes where I was like, ooh, I like really don't like this girl. She completely grew on me. But at the beginning, I don't know if it was just the sterile office with her lawyer. It just all felt like, Oh, I don't know you. I don't really care about you. I should care about you, but I don't. I liked her much better once she was in her aunt's home and she started to interact with other people. Then I really fell more into, I'm not going to say love, but into interest of her. Um, But I did not like her when she's like out by herself. I don't know why. I don't know why. It really bothered me. And I'm interested to see if that's going to be something where I'm like, does she just do really much better when she's playing off like a larger group of people and whatever. Maybe her chemistry with some of these other actresses are so much better, but I really didn't like her at the very beginning. What was your vibe off of her? I think because the fact that she grows on you over the course of the episode was that I think she was, I think she was exactly what we were supposed to take i think she was kind of standoffish and unlikable and naive to a fault the idea that she never cops to the idea that she was robbed at the train station you know she says my purse must have just gone missing like that level of i want to say stupid that is reductive but that level of naive that level i mean you know annoying at times it can be when 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 your eyes when you when you're so oblivious imagine peggy scott there if i'm sure peggy would have nailed that down in two seconds what happened but you know i mean her dress had been ripped and torn and she was so kind to you know put out uh, train fare for this strange woman who she has no reason to help. So I think if she stopped and thought about it for two seconds, she would have realized that she had been part of like a hustle. Um, but the idea that she had no idea her house was even rented. Now, yes, daughters and fathers have very complicated relationships. She really doesn't understand why her aunts were so angry with and and dismissive of her her late father Henry, the general. She's right. She's quick to point out to the lawyer. Not it wasn't Mister Brooks. It was General Brooks. She's very proud of him. And it turns out 
her whole life had been a lie, essentially. She was really sold this bill of goods by this man who, it turns out, probably wasn't such a great guy. That's a very startling place to be in and also feel like you have to conform uh, to society norms, right? She has that awkward interaction with the lawyer, Mr. Rakes, about whether or not he could write her. Mm-hmm. I feel like she I feel like she was trying very hard to be a lady, but really mm-hmm. was just a scared kid who didn't know what the hell was going on. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with you on that. She definitely comes off scared kid. I, I like her better as the smirky, like I'm understanding society's rules, but I think they're silly and I'm going to kind of like do my own thing here. I like that version of her. I don't like this this lead up to that of just being like, oh, wide eyed. Oh, what's happening? I didn't like it. And maybe it was because the actress herself just is so much better when she is playing with the other people and giving that smirk and giving that little bit more of that like mischievousness. That's like her wheelhouse. And so to play the innocent part, maybe it just wasn't gelling quite as well but i just mm, i didn't like it i wasn't into it and uh well i think she's also she's also serving uh, an interesting role too by giving us this dichotomy of if you work in this world according to agnes's rules it shows poverty so you can't work but also you can't sit around to do nothing so that leaves charity but even charities have to be the right charities you know when she says did i break another rule i think that's the exact kind of snark that you're talking about that is enjoyable when it when agnes takes her to task for for carrying a suitcase down the street and uh being unaccompanied out on the street and before that she says oh did i break another rule it was very funny to me i really enjoyed it it fits her better you know and i get i get what she's supposed to do for us within the story in terms of she gets to be sort of this more fluid person between the different classes a little bit, you know, because she can talk to different people and just kind of claim like, oh, I didn't realize I wasn't supposed to do that. And it's fine. No one's going to like, you know, murder her for that. It, it has to have that level of a little bit of irony, a little bit of her being snarky, a little bit of her knowing that she's being a little cheeky when she's doing things or else she loses me. You know, I, mm. I need that element as part of her character. You look at the role she's playing in the show versus the role that Mrs. Russell's playing in the show. Mrs. Russell's playing a role of women sparring with other women, whereas Marion is a young woman sparring worth the world, right? This is still very much a world. Someone say 2022 is still very much a world where women don't have a ton of agency, even though this world is dominated by strong women. Marion is not a woman who has a lot of agency afforded to her at this point. She is a long ladder to climb before she is an Agnes Van Ryn or the Mrs. Astor or Eva, even a Bertha Russell. And I think that's an interesting role for her to be playing. Even Peggy, who is a contemporary a peer of hers she's jealous of her because she learns at the end of the episode that peggy has goals and dreams and is doing peggy stuff about has an it education she right. knows what's up she knows what's going on in the world and that is a far more interesting character in a lot of ways again it but it allows marion to uh, you know again she can she can be with a woman of color and hang out with her and talk with her because she's not being treated as this like formal you have to stay in this section or this section or this section they're allowing this character to kind of flow like she can go talk with the help and she can go hang out in the park and she can she can go across the street and she can talk to the ants and she's privy to information but she's not held to the same formality standards or like punished for them at this point i don't know if that will grow old and the ants will be like 
you know the rules already. No more feigning ignorance on this. Right. I think another part of the role she's playing in the show is she is the viewer's avatar, right? She's the one, at least at this point in the series, that can say, who is that woman over there talking about Jean Triplehorn's, you know, uh, Mrs... Chamberlain. Yes. Mrs. Augustus Chamberlain, um, <laughs> whose real name, I guess, is Sylvia in the show. She she can say for us, who is that over there? Why why did they cast Jean Triplehorn and didn't give her any lines in this episode? I want to know more. The conceit of the show is she's coming in and doesn't know a goddamn thing. She can be us. She can ask, why won't you go across the street? Oh, um, let me give you a lesson on old money and new money and the Livingstons and the Stuyvesants and how the Russells are neither of those things kind of thing. You know, she, mm-hmm. she can ask the questions that we can't ask. Let's talk about her and Larry. They have the cute pumpkin meat cute in the middle of the road. Clearly, it's going to be a Romeo and Juliet thing. Well, I said the exact same things. I looked at Jack and I was like, Romeo and Juliet, two families are not going to be cool with this. (laughs) Like, watch what happens next. This is fascinating, the two of them. Again, I like it better when she's playing that kind of like a little flirty, a little bit, you know, smiley kind of mischievous lady I like this better i like larry i didn't have any issue with him i realized that larry and gladys however are like the keys to the kingdom and that everyone is going to have a lot of interest in gladys and larry because that's how you get into the russell fortune and it would right. be worth it to care about these two they are interesting characters not yet but they're the concept of them is interesting because obviously we're going to have a lot of people vying for their time and again i think that's why mrs russell doesn't have Gladys come out yet because the second that ball starts rolling where they're going to have to start sifting through who's just using her who's going to treat her right who's you know who can be trusted to have kings you know keys to the kingdom their hands are going to be full so I could understand a little bit about you know putting on the brakes before you put her into society so that I I like Marion and Larry and I and Oscar that little added triangle of him because I know he's in he says he's into Gladys but the whole Oscar character in general he's so that eddie haskell kind of feel to him that just he's like a little extra everything he's doing is a little extra oscar is fascinating because you have the gay reveal at the end which i guess someone was going to be revealed to be gay in the show but the fact that it was oscar who seemed like he had a libido in gear six i think he's going to be someone who you're going to see with with a lot of people because i think he has a large <laughs> libido i like that he he has his own game going like it seems most of the time uh yeah i think he's going to be an interesting foil for a lot of stodgy society because he seems to be an embracer of the new unlike his aunt i think they're fascinating it's like the shiny new thing blake ritson is playing oscar here and i know him from krypton he was great on that show so i was very excited to see him in this cast i actually liked him a lot in that show just the mustache alone made me interested in uh, <laughs> his the, floppy hair too yeah and i know and, and so they introduced john adams the man he's with at the end of the episode claiborne elders playing him i thought it was very interesting because they laid that ground very nicely because mary knows she's supposed to bat her eyelashes at him and he is so dismissive of her he mm-hmm. does not care about her one way or another in their scene together and you're kind of like oh that's interesting because you know high society they all play these kinds of games and these rules and there seem to be established doings 
and goings on, even if you're the great grandson of a former president. But then at the end of the episode, you are like, oh, he really has no interest in Mary. He doesn't care at all. It, it's interesting. I, I thought the show did actually some nice groundwork there. Uh, I want to play this clip from Agnes talking about revolutions and the way she sums up her worry about Marion and being a little too much like Agnes's brother, Henry. She can be so like him at times. She speaks and I hear Henry's voice challenging everything just as he did. And look how that turned out. Well, I like her strong views. I like her energy. Don't worry, Agnes. She's clever. She'll learn the rules. Will she? Revolutions are launched by clever people with strong views and excess energy. I don't know that that's really a bad thing. And and not to say anything else, but Agnes, you know, she says you have to go get bright colored clothes. You have to be shown to advantage. We're going to be debuting you to society. I mean, Gladys and Marion are in the same boat in a lot of ways. You could see Agnes is already positioning to use Marion in the same way Bertha is, Mrs. Russell, sorry, is, <laughs> is, is positioning to use Larry, right? She, she pushes Larry out the door to go hang out with Carrie Astor and Mamie Fish and everyone else up in Newport. They're using their kids or nieces as pawns to further entrench themselves in the society. It's fascinating. Well, it's royalty, right? It's, it's royalty, it's, it's yeah. Got to marry two kingdoms together. And, and the elders have a vested interest in who those kingdoms are that come together. It is interesting. We said Romeo and Juliet, and I don't know, which was my first thought, but I don't see actually George and Bertha Russell being against Larry getting involved with Marion because that is an in into the old money. I think, I think the obstinance is really going to come more from Agnes, maybe not even... Aunt Ada, but more Aunt Agnes, when there is a John Adams out there to be had. You know, Marion herself isn't bringing much to the table besides the name. Mm -hmm. And so that's good in one way. But I mean, if, if you have as much money as the Russells, you can get the name and the money. So in uh, the business, you know, contacts and stuff like that, like Larry can marry someone with a lot more to bring to the table than just a name. He can marry into the Astor family, you know, like I mean, he, right. he, he could do better. Well, yes and no, because if you asked the Mrs. Astor right now, will your daughter, will you allow your daughter to marry Larry Russell? I think she's going to say no. I'm not saying what is going to happen. I'm saying the potential. If you're the Russells and you're right. saying, I have X amount of money and we could t times it by two. Okay. Who oh, do we of course. want yes, yes, to yes. do that to? So I think that they might turn their nose up at a Marion, not, not because the Astors would say yes, but just because they're going to shoot higher than her. Maybe, but I, I do feel like the Van Rynes, the way this show is positioning, the Van Rynes are a fictional family, but they're definitely of the Livingstons who came and the, the Van, Van Rensselaers and a bunch of other of the Dutch families that came so many, who came so many centuries ago to, to New York. Specifically, the Van Rynes are clearly supposed to be of that same ilk. I think that's a name that's worthy because the name is the only thing they don't have. And the Van Rynes in this world maybe don't carry Aster power, but they carry as much weight as any of the other families. I'll be interested to see how George and Bertha respond to the idea of Marion and whether or not she is good enough. Because it will be one of those back and forth, like, what if Marion does fall in love with Larry? And what if the aunts do come around and the Russells themselves say, 
nah, how it all turns, you know? We're running down on characters here. I think we still have to talk about the two ants and we have to talk about Peggy Scott. I think three really fascinating characters. Let's talk about the ants. We have to talk about them so hard because of who plays them, Mike. Start with Aunt, let's start with Aunt Ada, played by Cynthia Nixon, because this is as different a role as I think I've, you know, I know Cynthia Nixon because of Sex in the City, and I know people are watching her right now in, and just like that. This feels like a very different departure of that. What's your feeling? Because I think you're watching and just like that, switching mm-hmm. back and forth on HBO. Whiplash? Yes. Yes. To say the least, I had actually a really hard time for the first bit of this trying to wrap my head around why am I seeing Miranda talk like this and look like this. But it worked for me once that Ada became sort of morphing into this like Rose Nyland type character. Very much so. Yeah. Then I was like, okay with it, because that's such a departure from Miranda for me. Before that, it was like it was still Miranda in a dress that didn't suit her <laughs> and a you know hairdo that was weird and a and is you know way that she was talking was just like Miranda what are you doing this is all so weird but once it was like more rose-ish I was like okay hold on like I liked her more sort of playful a little bit childlike in the childlike way she very childlike I think speak about things yeah and she was she was more open she obviously hadn't gone through the traumas that Agnes had. So she had been spared those. And in that she retained more of her innocence, more of her just sort of like kind heart, more of her willingness to um, see the world and as a good place. And Agnes, you know, she had to go through a lot more and I'm very much presented herself as like the sacrificial lamb for the family that she had had to go through this in order to keep the family afloat. Christine Baranski, I mean, I think she's amazing. We've seen her on many things now with our our Christmas podcast. She was well represented, I would say, in most of the movies we covered. The best who in Whoville, for sure. Yeah. And I think she played it beautifully. I mean, I at first I really could not stop just looking at it as like Christine Baranski and Cynthia Nixon wearing these period pieces. They're, it's really blockbuster casting. And for a show that otherwise didn't get the biggest names involved, they're two pretty blockbuster names to, to sign on to your show in significant ways. I mean, they're, they're major characters, at least seem like they're going to be major characters. Do you feel that way when it is a blockbuster name that it's like you see the actor first and it takes you a while to actually absorb the character they're playing? It it really depends on who the actor is. I slip into Baranski and whatever she's playing really easy. One, I think she's always playing a little bit of a version of herself. I think all of her characters share a really sharp tongue bite to them. So it's very easy for me to find that character. I agree with you. I only know Cynthia Nixon as Miranda. So this was a little whiplash for me. I have not been watching, though. I got to tell you, I have not been watching and just like that. So I'm 20 years in the rear view on Sex in the City. Uh, I literally went from the finale to episode one of Gilded Age. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> like, I, I don't I don't know what I'm looking at here. I really don't. The two grew on me wholeheartedly. And I think we need that yin and yang of the ants to show yeah. both sides to her. We need some compassion for Marion. But 
she does need guidance and some like rigidity in her life of like, no, you've got to do it this way, especially about things like you can't go out unaccompanied. Like right. there's some safety issues here that Marion doesn't get that we've dealt with over in 1883 about like, I, I get it when you live in the country, you might be able to do certain things. But when you're in like a group of people, you've got to handle yourself differently now and be careful, be more careful. And, you know, we saw what happened with Marion. She didn't even realize what was going on safety wise with like her purse do you know who uh agnes and ada really remind me of i just thought of it now i've been my my brain had been searching for it and I, literally while you were talking i just put my finger okay, can on i have it. some hints give me some hints uh literary characters okay give me more uh from a beloved child series from Ooh. from that was popular from when we were kids maybe in that six grade fifth sixth seventh grade age well my first thing was the two ants from james and the giant peach but that can't be it because you never read anything i read that's like normal (laughs) i i I proudly proudly and ignorantly say i have never read any ronald doll uh oh god see why do you even say that god fantastic mr fox shame on you i didn't like i didn't like the animated movie for that either you Um, I did like BFG terrible. though. I really like BFG. See? Made me cry. So, um, uh-huh. a wrinkle in time. Okay, I they remind me of the W's, Mrs. Who, Mrs. Which. You know, they remind me of like those kinds of characters, those kinds of archetypes. One is serious, okay. but is but also has maybe a little soft inside. One is just always comforting and trying to give you chocolate chip cookies and be gentle with you. I, I want to play this clip because this goes towards your Rose Nyland. Rose was always good because every now and then amongst her stories that were nonsensical, she would have these great nuggets of truth yes. and advice. I'm so glad. You know how much I love Golden Girls. I don't know. I think that's a great comparison. I don't know if you have the same love as I do, but there's but that little part, I'm so glad you picked up on that, Mike, because that's how I feel about Rose. Like she does have these smart little wise moments, you know, and and you can't like underestimate her all the time. But she also has this gigglier side. My most favorite thing is when she's like, they were like, What were you doing? She was like, I was playing under my bed. (laughs) That kind of stuff that Rose says, like just playing. She was just playing. I want to go play. <laughs> I don't deserve it, truly, as I cannot promise to live within Antagonus's confines. I understand. I only ask that you never break your own moral code. But that is the soundest guide any of us can have. How wise, Aunt Ada. Please don't sound quite so surprised. If she invited her to go have cheesecake in the kitchen, I definitely would have felt like. <laughs> or if she said something like totally nonsensical right after that, if she was like, bibbidi boo, and yeah. like took off. I'm going to have slide juice. I, yeah. Nothing would have surprised me. And I actually, you know what helps with that feel is the music that they play. The mm-hmm. soundtrack sometimes is a little extra bouncy where it's like, boop, beep. Like it's just like going where it's not serious and it's not like the strict formal sounding music. It has this lighter tone at times that kind of is trying to keep it, I think, a little bit more fun is not quite the word, but just lighter, like a little lighter tone than in every other scene. It's bouncy, yeah. It's it's a it's a plucky bounce on the strings Mm -hmm. versus Doom. I mean, let's compare Rose Nyland, you know, Aunt Ada to this story, which we which reveals who Agnes is, and I think goes a long way of explaining why she is the way she is. 
You mustn't think harshly of Agnes. Her life has not always been easy. Why did she hate my father so? He sold our family farms. He sold the house where we were born and where we had lived for a century and a half. And then he just spent the money. He bought nothing, he saved nothing, he gave us, his sisters, nothing. So she felt he'd betrayed you both? That's how it was for her. You see, our father had died quite young, and we depended on Henry entirely. So she wasn't already married? No, but he'd proposed, and so she felt she had no choice. Henry had let us down, and there was nothing for it but to marry Mr. Van Ryn. And he was not an easy man. He was not a man you would like to be alone with. That's heavy. It's very heavy, and and I don't know that I even need more information than that. I kind of want it just because I want I want to be able to do a family tree of all these people because I'm obsessed with it. But <laughs> also, I feel like that is everything I need to know about why Agnes. That's why she clings to her genealogy and to her lineage because of what it's cost her to get it. Yes, yes, yes. She was 100 percent the sacrifice. She makes me think of Dorothy in a lot of ways on Golden Girls, who you know was not treated well by her husband. It was a comedy so they didn't say not someone you wouldn't want to be alone with but you know in that same kind of way of just being treated so poorly and being kind of crapped on by your family you know she was always the one that Sophia would not you know she would put her sister ahead of her and all that kind of stuff there's a lot going on there that you could see and I think why Agnes and Ada work good together because it's that same Rose Dorothy kind of dynamic of like you have this more strict Christine Baranski has her eye roll like locked and loaded like at all times and you get that same vibe between the two of them this clip says everything you need to know about why Baranski is so goddamn good and so funny if you can't feel the eye roll and the 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 sarcasm coming through your computer screen speakers on this clip I have a question who is Mrs. Augustus Chamberlain when have you heard that name? Mrs. Chamberlain was at Mrs. Fane's charity gathering. Was she, by heavens? Later, who else was there? Pickpockets? Newly released criminals? What was Aurora thinking? One must remember that the point of the exercise is to raise money. That is no excuse for risking the reputation of every lady in the room. Marion, when and if you see Mrs. Chamberlain again, you are to turn your face away. Is that clear? Very clear. So what about Mrs. Russell's party? I presume we're not going. Are you mad? Pickpockets? Newly released criminals? Are you mad? And she's she's fantastic in there. She tells <laughs> she tells an adult woman to turn her face away from another adult woman should she even make eye contact with her. That was intense. I loved it. It I, I, it tickled me to no end. <laughs> but you know my heart in the uh, sense of, of course, like who of did course. I think of in that whole conversation? Was I even thinking of Agnes and what she was saying? No, you're thinking about Miss Chamberlain standing I was alone. Thinking poor Miss Chamberlain standing alone, and I cannot imagine someone turning their face like oh guys, my heart guys just listen come, come, come close to the, come, come close to the speakers here they don't hire jean Triplehorn to stand drinking tea by herself in the ballroom at a lunch she's gonna become a player in the show i don't know how but she's gonna i think she's gonna be a secret marion mentor <gasps> that's going to be what i'm throwing out there secret marion mentor smm and just like that <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I, 
listen, I, I, I agree with you. I think Ada and Agnes, the A's, are such a good duo. They are just a yin-yang to each other. But that's what makes it work. And you know what? I, one thing that I liked was Agnes doesn't let Ada forget it. She says to her, I wasn't afforded the ability to have a spinster life. This idea where Ada was able to be innocent, but from Agnes's, it was a spinster life. And it's true. Ada has lived on the largesse of her sister and her sister's husband's fortune and legacy. But she doesn't let her forget that either. As much as she loves her sister, she also clearly is always going to dig on her about you only get to live here and have all the fancy clothes because of me and my dead husband and my sacrifice. Did it surprise you, given Agnes the way she set up, that she's so accepting of Ms. Peggy Scott? To the point of hiring her on the spot, essentially, as a secretary going forward. I think they were brilliant, absolutely brilliant, to bring in... Yeah, let's give the show... I agree you mean? So I was like, what are you doing? I was plotting the show. I was so glad that they brought up this real school, the Institute for Colored Youth in Philadelphia, and that the aunts had a connection to the school and that they had actually been to these holiday shows that likely Peggy was actually in them. I feel like they were so smart to not just make it seem sort of arbitrary. Like, or charity. Okay, well, but that it was so random is was what I'm going mm. with, that it was oh, just okay. like, yeah, yeah. oh, she just suddenly out of nowhere felt comfortable with this woman because that wouldn't have worked for me. I would have been like, right. Agnes would be way more suspicious. This does not work. But the way that they quickly had that bond and it was sort of like we were in the same place at the same time for different reasons. But and that she appreciated her skill set. They gave her an actual skill set that could be useful to Agnes. I think that that was very smart and that Peggy, first of all, I just love her. I think she's such a likable woman, both as the actor and as the the character herself. She just seems like someone I would love to have a conversation with. She felt warm and she was so gracious with Marion to begin with. She had such empathy. You know, I'm going to get sucked into that. And, you know, and, and invited her to be sit with her on the train and pay for her way and all that kind of stuff. All the things that she did to take care of her. It was such a good foundational setup for Peggy and where she stood in in the household that they owed her for taking care of Marion. The whole thing worked for me. I think it was very smart and very well done. And and I think could eliminate a lot of people's uh, sort of skeptical feelings about like, this doesn't really jive with how these ants would probably act about someone staying in their home. I even like the little added thing about you need to get in touch with your family and make a day to see them because I'm not going to be responsible for like having some sort of freaking drama around here. A fugitive, a fugitive of my home. That's the she used but i but the bigger i mean that was like right, a very she, formal right. way of but the real like the layman's terms are she doesn't want any drama she doesn't want anyone showing up on her steps yelling for peggy upstairs kind of thing you know whatever's going on in your personal life handle it because i don't want any business here it was really good mom advice if i had the same exact scenario with my own children and someone had paid one of their ways and they came and they asked if they could stay at the house one thousand percent i have asked both of those questions who do I contact in case there's a problem? Because, you know, what happens if you start like, you know, if you fall down outside and you get hurt or something, I need to call your mom or somebody. I need a contact person for you. And I don't want to be a part of any drama. So if like you're here because you're in a fight with somebody, let's let's figure this out so that, you know, there's no drama around here. Both of those things, smart and realistic. And I'll piggyback on that. 
because I agree with you, but also the fact that she doesn't force, she's not trying to force her to fix her relationships. She says, I mean, I, I like Peggy. She hustles herself. She, she doesn't really hustle her way into a job, but once she's got the job, she hustles her way into housing. But, you know, even when the ferry's running from Brooklyn, that's just not like a thing that, you know, and Agnes is smart enough to understand what she's doing. And acknowledges that she does have to go meet her family and inform them of her change in circumstance, but doesn't make her solve it. I like that about Agnes, that she acknowledges, oh, you don't want to go home. Okay, you don't want to go to Brooklyn. That's fine, but you still have to let them know. But I'm not also going to make you, I'm not going to play therapist here, family therapist, where you have to solve your problems. It's enough Mm -hmm. for you just to let them know that you're here and then your family business is your own family business. I like that dynamic a lot. And I also liked, and this is, the evidence for your point, she says, I need a reference before I can hire you as my secretary. Peggy, thinking quick on her feet, says, I can get a letter from the principal of the institute. And that's fine. And that's fine for Agnes. That is great. That's a great connection to the point you're making, the evidence for why it works and is believable that she mm-hmm. would let the stranger into her home and give her a job. The Institute is something she knows and believes in and her family has supported forever. And physically been there and, and saw the kids and saw the show and please, stuff. Yeah, please uh, go up to your room before Ada makes you sing a, a song from the <laughs> Christmas pageant, you know? That was very cute. But also how Rosen Island is that. Uh, of course. And how, but and how Dorothy is that to be like, get out of here before there's a St. Olaf story kind of right, thing. Exactly. Like, super funny and cool. Okay, I also want to add this really important portion of how this works out amongst these women. We have Marion and Peggy and Ada and Agnes and the power of women helping women. The station of life that each of them are in and how they each have the power to pull strings and to, and to use connections and to offer up, be generous and gracious at different points and how much that helped one another beautiful juxtaposition to what's going on with the Russells and the other women and how they're treating Bertha and how you can take those same connections and the same access and the same lack of being gracious and being generous to people and sink them and like ruin their lives like look at how fascinating they're doing that amongst these two groups of women really good work there's also a, a, adding to that point there's a there's a level of sophistication in how this world works Agnes understands the rules so she knows Knows she can send Marion and Ada in her place to that charity lunch because they just want the money. It's not about making friends for Agnes. She doesn't need them as friends. She already has them as allies because they are all agreed old money. So she understands I could send you and this can be a coming out party for you for this charity event, Marion, and I'll send my sister as like your guardian. I don't need to go to this. They just want my Van Ryn money. Whereas Bertha and Gladys go to the event Bertha understands that they're looking for money from her, but she doesn't understand that's all they're looking for from her or hopes anyway that she can make it more than just about the money, which is why she's so hurt later on when uh, Aurora shows up at her house for the housewarming party, literally is staring at the clock the entire time. And, And Mrs. Russell says, just go. Just go. I understand you just want my money. Just get out of here. You don't want to be my friend. You don't want to open up doors for me. The rules are different. They are different rules. Old rules, new money. It's different rules for how the Van Rynes can attend things versus how the Russells can attend things. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it is important to point out this was an hour and a half episode. This was like a mini movie. Um, you know, I felt like, boy, we met so many characters. There were so many storylines. How do you feel like this is going to be for watchers? And, you know, 
as a first episode, was this going to be overwhelming? Is this going to be like uh, just getting sucked into everybody? When the episode ended, I felt like, and I sat and I thought about it, but I'm also taking notes too. But Me I, too. <laughs> but the, the first time I watched it though, I did not take notes. I just watched it. And I felt like when the episode ended, I was overwhelmed because it was a lot of information. But when I thought about it, I felt like I understood where everyone was at the end of the episode. I felt like even though there's so many characters here, I, I mean, I have an entire single page, single space line of just characters in the show. Mm-hmm. I still felt like they were all connected enough. I was able to keep them straight i knew where everyone everyone's story that i'm supposed to know i felt like i knew maybe some of the staff i had to go look up names and who this was or that was but i understood i think all the plot lines so it is a lot to digest but it's digestible if that makes sense i think so and i definitely encourage people because we have screeners and so we have more than one episode i suggest that you know hang in there if you watch the first episode and you feel like oh my gosh i feel a little overwhelmed i'm not sure if i can keep track they are so well developed with the different characters and the different storylines that it becomes very clear who everyone is and you know at first especially the men i mean there's so many of them and and including the the servant help too when they're wearing uniforms or they're all wearing suits it can be extremely difficult to tell one from another i mean everyone looks awfully similar you know right. and there are a lot of overlapping roles there is valets yeah, there are valets yeah. and there are housekeepers and there are maids and there are cooks and there are people who are doing both and there are heads of households and there are different houses where people work and then goddamn they add hefty they add hefty at the end of the astor house hefty we don't need you go open your own door carrie, <laughs> carrie and helen and rosie roosevelt go open your own door <laughs> no it, it was confusing a little bit so I, I definitely want to encourage our listeners if you are tuning in because you're like oh my god i need someone to explain who all these people are we're definitely here every week to do that with you and i encourage you to, to make sure that you go ahead and rewatch it even if you just turn it on in the background and you're doing some other things the second time they, you will start to find those small nuances the small little parts that you're like okay i completely do know who that person is now and i get where their storyline is this is not a passive watching show this is an active watching not show. not your first go at at all you absolutely have to pay attention to who everyone is i think once you get it you get it though you're like fully like there's several teams and i get where they all go one thing that we didn't talk about with peggy because it's going to become an issue and it was a little bit of an issue tonight is race but in 1882 in the reconstruction era race is still an issue and you can tell some people look at peggy and they're uncomfortable with with a black woman being uh in the same floor as a white as a white family being in the same carriage as marion right that footman who's driving a carriage doesn't know that he wants to take and doesn't understand why Marion is saying Peggy should come with me inside the carriage. I actually really, the vibe there, I really thought was that once Marion got in, he was actually going to step in front of Peggy and give her at least a long stare. Like, right. Well, he stared at her, right? He, he was. He did. He did. But Marion got in first. And so I honestly, I mean, I was waiting it. There was a beat there that I was like, oh, he's going to say something or he's going to step in front of her and just give her a look. That's like, you know, I'm bending some rules here. 
here. Uh, you know, you better not give me any trouble kind of thing. So so two things on that. One is I, at the end of, though, I it would have been so easy and maybe predictable for Agnes to be kind of a racist asshole. And she wasn't. And that made me very happy. So it's interesting that the racism level is kind of being handled at the servant level and not even the older servants, though a little bit. But it's really Bridget, who is played by Taylor Richardson in a show. She's the one who kind of expresses the they're taking our jobs. You have to stay on the same floor as her. What did you think? I want to play this clip from uh, Bannister about disruption and how maybe we need a little bit. How long is she here for? And why is she here at all? Because she performed a great service for Miss Marion. I'm going to bed. Good night. I think that Miss Scott seems nice. Which is all you know. Yes, it is. And I'm sticking to it until she proves me wrong. That's all very well for you to say. But they're coming up here now to take our jobs. She's not taking anyone's job. See? She'll disrupt things. I told Mrs. Bauer, but she wouldn't listen. Maybe we need a bit of disruption. That is Bannister is the one who says we maybe we need a little bit of disruption. That's Mrs. Armstrong in the black, who is like one of the head housekeepers. Uh, that was Bridget, who said they're taking our jobs. And that was Jack the footman, who said, I like her fine. And I will until someone tells me otherwise. I like Bannister is this older gentleman, an older white guy. And he's saying maybe we can use a little disruption around here. That's very forward thinking for this time for and for for this character in this station. I definitely think that he was a surprise. I'm glad for it because he has a lot of sway with that group and he's clearly going to keep them a little more in line about like not putting up with you know just random racism like you know she's doing a good job cut it out you know there's no reason for you to act like that towards her I don't think we mentioned before Peggy Scott being played by Danae Benton. We meet her mother in this episode, uh, played by Audra McDonald, who I love, and she is like a Broadway legend, and she's fantastic. Guest starring role here as Dorothy Scott. Did you get the impression that the Scots had money? Well, there was I. I was really surprised to see her mom and see the setting that they were in, and I was like, oh, hang on a second, like. I, the way that she was speaking about Brooklyn and she was being like really, really kind of like not really wanting to tell address and not really wanting to to give any info. I really thought she was very embarrassed of them in some way. This is a different dynamic than I was expecting. So I, I don't like she kind of made it seem like she was, I don't know, like we all do. We think we're more sophisticated than our parents, whether we are or aren't. We kind of feel that way, right? Well, well, my, my feeling was Dorothy was like, why did you want to meet here? And and and. Peggy's reaction was kind of like, I like the vibe of it. It's almost like you were asking your will to do parents to come to like a dive bar. And so that was, and then she shoves money into her hand, which yeah. if they weren't well offish or at least middle class ish, I don't think you would see it, the whole dynamic, maybe. And it's, you know, Ultra McDonald has this sophistication to her and, a, and, a, cla- and a classy vibe I didn't to know her. her. I didn't know her, but I felt that vibe. Uh, but yeah, for sure. And, and that's always kind of her vibe that she, I feel like she has every, every time I see her. So I, it made me think. And then when you add the penmanship that has been practiced beyond the penmanship, the way they're talking about it is more than just learned at school. It is an educated woman who has practiced her trade and wants to be a writer. You know, there's something to be said about ambition and drive. And your upbringing. It's not just talk, right? We see her after her last conversation with Marion. Peggy sits down and she pulls out a piece of paper, her fountain pen, and she begins to write. It, the whole vibe made me feel like there is Scott intrigue here. And I think there's money. I definitely want to know more about the father situation. What's the deal there? What is her upbringing? Because I think it's going to turn out to be surprising that they're going to be a more well-to-do family than maybe we assumed. Interest peaked. 
the last thing I want to talk about, just because it's a love letter to New York, and I would be remiss if I didn't say, as a lifelong New Yorker, that New Yorkers can do anything. Then why shouldn't you? I envy you. I'd like to work, too, properly. What at? I'm not like you. I don't have any burning talent yearning to be free. I just want to be busy, to be needed, to be in a hurry. You know, they'd never allow it, except for charity. Then I'll work at my charities and wait to see what comes. After all, we've made it to the city. That's right. You're a New Yorker now. We both are. And for a New Yorker, anything is possible. So good luck to both of us. And, uh, and good night. Good night, Peggy. Hell yeah. Being a New Yorker means anything is possible for you. And I really like that she calls her Peggy at the end. I think that was a nice little touch that they didn't need to add, but it signaled that Marion sees her as an equal, which, again, is not an assumption that you can easily make at this time. But she sees her as a friend. I like that. I thought it was a nice little touch. I look forward to the relationship between Marion and Peggy and trying to figure out where does Marion go next and and having her alongside Peggy, who seems to have her her goals and her dreams like just directly on track here that, you know, this this will be fascinating. Fascinating to see one, you know, help the other. And maybe I'll be interested to see if Marion is of any support or help to Peggy. Like, I think there's lots that Peggy brings to the table for Marion. I'm kind of curious if, you know, what Marion's going to be able to offer to Peggy. Well, didn't she? I mean, I, I saw it as her bringing her into the carriage. She didn't need to do that. Uh, and there are plenty of women in her status who wouldn't have shown her that or returned that kindness to her. A thousand percent. I, I agree with you. Obviously, access. Yes. You know, that's something that Marion can do. But I think I'm what I was trying to say is more the friendship aspect of it all of like, you know, OK, so Peggy has, you know, this education and she has dreams and she has hopes and thoughts about it and all. And Marion seems very unsure about where she fits in everywhere. So I'm just interested to see. You're right. Obviously, access wise, you know, she's going to be able to provide a lot for Peggy. But can she, the substantive friendship, though, you know, yeah, like what is going to be her maybe stand up to Bridget or something like that. Right. Yeah. Or or introduce her to the Russells. More than just, I had to, I couldn't leave her in the rain, but like something more proactive friendship door opening. You know, maybe she meets a publisher. Oh, I know someone who's a writer. Something like that is what I I think we're we're talking about, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, all of those things are access and connections. And so that is good. Um, But just like if they, let's just say they were in the wilderness. I think Peggy has like a lot to her personality and to the things that she you know would be able to talk about i think that she's well educated and everything marion i'm unsure i she's more of a of an empty vessel waiting to be filled up i'm wondering what she would what would she talk about on her end of the conversation if you were sitting in the woods for days i don't know i think she would have a lot of questions and be curious and peggy would have more to say Caroline, end of the episode, long, long time talking, long episode, long pilot episode of the series. If you had to sum up one thing that you're most curious to see them dive into more, what would you say? Oh, God, I want to know what Mrs. Russell's going to do to to vindicate herself after this party debacle. I want to see how they are going to uh, punish and figure out how to make the next steps into society. 
I agree. I agree. Though I do got to tell you, I want to see Jean Triplehorn get in action. I'm a big fan of hers. Yeah. Uh, so, and honestly, I want to see more of Miss Astor than Mrs. Astor. I'm I'm okay. obsessed with the power. Um, they haven't they didn't show it yet here, but Nathan Lane is going to be uh, introduced in the show. Uh, he was at, he was a big advertisement as Ward McAllister, who together with Mrs. Astor ran the 400. It's Ward Ma- Ward McAllister is the one who actually published the 400 list in the New York Times. Uh, which is where that comes from, um, the 400 people who are eligible for polite society. I, I want to see them do battle with the Russells. I really want to see the co- the colliding of the Titans there. Um, can I share a little Donna Murphy? Uh, I'm almost even embarrassed to share this with you, but I feel like I have to. <laughs> well, you better now. So Donna Murphy, who is playing uh, Mrs. Astor in the series, about two months ago, I've been watching a lot of Star Trek during the pandemic, and I was catching up on Star Trek the Next Generation movies, and um, she is in one of the movies. Now, this is going back like 20 years when this movie came out. I think it was Insurrection, Star Trek Next Generation Insurrection. And I, when I was watching this movie, I was taken by how absolutely beautiful she was in the movie. I, I just, just stunned me. I, I looked at her credits. I looked tried to see where, like, I would maybe had known her from otherwise, other than this one Star Trek movie that I was watching. And I had not seen her in anything. Fast forward like three, four months, and now here she is playing the Mrs. Astor in this show. I just thought it was a little funny connection. I love that was like your Dear Diary moment. It was a very Dear Diary moment. Maybe at I'm, the end of every episode, you should be like, Dear Diary. And, and just like that. <laughs> This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. Please head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, if you could, leave us a five-star rating, but particularly at Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts, that would be great. Because you know what? Patience, persistence, these are qualities that we appreciate about you. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.